Good evening. I've always said, I don't know why, but I would much rather get up and preach than give announcements, and that was before I'd ever heard of Spookaship Chick or Treat, and now I'm, now Halloween has a whole new level of terror to me, the thought of having to announce that name, so uh, kudos to Caden uh, on announcing that, and uh, all those who do our announcements, that is not a job that I envy uh, at all for whatever reason. I know that my Redeemer lives. Those are words that are very, very special to me. I love those words dearly for several reasons, but one of those reasons is I hear those words all the time. I hear them constantly, uh, day to day around my house, because that song has in some ways become the theme song of our family. I don't know what it was, but from a young age, Silas always loved the song, I know that my Redeemer lives. I don't know if it's because that I know is so strong, it's easy to grab onto, uh, but he just always enjoyed singing that song. And so you all know from a young age, our singing nights, whenever Silas would come up to lead a song, he always wanted to lead the song, I know that my Redeemer lives. And uh, like older brother, like younger brother, um, now Mathis absolutely loves the song, I know that my Redeemer lives. And if you spend any amount of time around our house, you will hear uh, some soulful renditions of that song, as you all have heard from this very podium. Uh, you know that they get into the song, I know that my Redeemer lives. I love hearing the voices of children sing songs of praise to God. And that's why I enjoy recently our singing nights have been filled with young voices and young men getting up to lead singing, and I so enjoy that. Children have this sort of ignorant innocence is what I would call it and I don't mean that in a negative way but I just mean to say they don't understand every word that they're singing and I think that we could say the same thing about us as well sometimes but I think that God is pleased when his name is glorified out of the mouths of children and I don't think that we should take that to mean that children don't understand anything about these songs because if you really talk to kids you'll be surprised just how much they know about God and about what they're singing and what they believe and there's a reason that Jesus says in Mark chapter 10 and verse 15 that those who don't receive the kingdom of heaven like a child will not enter it that mindset of a child there's something about it and there's something to be said for a childlike faith that just accepts the reality of facts and statements that would otherwise just really be difficult for us to believe. For example, I think the supposed greatest minds in the world, if we got them all in one room tonight, they would have difficulty coming to terms with the idea that any kind of higher being exists in the first place. They don't believe it. They can't believe it for whatever reason. But the children in this room can not only tell you that there's a higher being, they can tell you who he is, they can tell you what he's done, and in the process answer some of the very questions that philosophers and scientists are still tortured by to this day. The kids in this room know the answers to those questions, and the great minds don't. Children have that youthful energy. They have that, that spunk and that excitement that we just wish we could bottle up and say for a rainy day, don't we? And again, part of that is that they just aren't as weary or skeptical or jaded or even numbed like several of us get just by the toils that the world lays on us. It's hard. It's hard to be an adult. It's hard to live in this world, and children just seem to be unaffected by that. And so I smile when I hear my son sing, I know that my Redeemer lives, because by worldly standards, that is a ridiculous, foolish thing to say. 
I know that my Redeemer lives, is foolish, and you can add it to the list of several other foolish statements that we make when we sing the same kind of declaration. Because he lives, he lives, he lives. Jesus is well and alive today. Up from the grave he arose. It's the most scandalous statement in all of human history because it implies something happened that had never happened before and has never happened since. Now, we've all heard about people that were on the edge of death. Maybe they got, had a close call on the operating table, and they said they were almost gone, and through some kind of intervention, they came back. Whether it be medicine, uh, a doctor, whatever it is, they came back from the brink, but that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about, I know that my Redeemer lives. And you may say, well, we have stories in our Bible in multiple passages about the dead coming back to life, whether it be a son or a daughter or a woman who cared for widows or a beloved friend and brother. The list goes on of people that the Bible says were dead and came back to life. But that isn't even the same thing that we are considering because each and every one of those people died again. They're all dead today. Now, we know that these people continue to exist. They didn't cease to exist. They have souls that are awaiting judgment. But we mean something fundamentally different when we say that Jesus is alive today. This day, this date and time, Jesus is alive. And it's something that sounds preposterous when we, we're not talking about a resuscitation. We're talking about resurrection. And it's a shocking statement when you really consider the truth of it. But that's not to say that it's unfounded, foolish as it may be to the world, and shocking as it may be to us and our intellect. It's not unfounded. In fact, there's a mountain of evidence that something happened at the end of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. Something happened that turned fishermen into faithful martyrs. Something happened that led to beatings and riots in major Roman cities. Something happened that, as Brother John alluded to this morning, turned the world upside down. But don't let it be lost on you that the biblical claim is that that something is that Jesus Christ left his tomb early one Sunday morning and has been alive ever since. So alive, so alive that one day, Acts chapter 1 verse 11 says, we will see him with our very eyes as he returns in the same manner in which he went up. We will see him coming back. And so when we sing, I know that my Redeemer lives, I hope that we sing it with childlike faith and acceptance, but we must acknowledge the weight behind those words. Because the entirety of our faith hangs on that being true. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. He goes on in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If you are a Christian tonight and Jesus is not well and alive today, if he is not resurrected from the grave, then you are a fool. You're a fool. 
Those aren't my words. That's the words of the Bible. The Bible says if Jesus is not living today, if he's not raised from the dead, then you are wasting your life on something that is not worth the commitment. Paul says if that's true, if he never rose from the dead, turn off the lights, let's go home. We are wasting our time. Because if Jesus isn't alive, then we are liars. We do not know God. We are dead in our sins with no hope. And each and every faithful loved one that you have buried is gone. They're gone. There is no hope. They've perished forever. They're lost in the abyss of darkness. And we are soon to join them. And we are of all people most to be pitied, if that's the case. If you are in this room tonight and you are not a Christian, and I don't know if there are any non-Christians in the room, if the resurrection is not true, then you have no reason to become a Christian. There's no reason to become a Christian if the resurrection of Jesus is not true. But conversely, if the resurrection of Jesus is true, then you have no reason not to become a Christian. It's really as simple as that. If someone has defeated death... If someone has found the cure, then you have no better choice than to cast your lot with them. Because you are afraid to die. And don't tell me that you're not. I know that you are. If you look at the most common fears shared by the majority of humankind, these are the, the top phobias, if you will, I think you're going to find a common thread. What about arachnophobia? Does anybody love spiders in here? What about Ophidiophobia, that's a hard word for me, and it means afraid of snakes. I'm sure there's people in here that are afraid of snakes. Acrophobia, fear of heights. Aerophobia, fear of planes, fear of dogs, lightning, germs, you name it. Why do we have these phobias? Is it because snakes just put off a bad, a bad vibe? Is it because we think that the heights, well, they just kind of make me feel icky? No, we're afraid that we're going to die. We're afraid that these things are going to kill us. And so whatever phobia it is, if you trace it back down, we are afraid of dying. In the world at large, everyone is afraid of death because everyone dies. And so if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, don't tell me that you haven't thought about it, thought about being gone thought about what's going to happen when you die and you're not around anymore, leaving all this life that you've known behind dead. You're afraid of that. We're all afraid of that if we're left to our own devices. Well, let's keep talking about death. It's such a cheery topic, I know. But it's worth noting that there is nothing unique about a religion that people will die for. There's nothing unique about a religion that people are willing to die for. Look at the groups over the years that have become violent martyrs for the sake of their faith. We could look at radical Islamic terrorism. There are people willing to die for that. We know that it's not true. We know it's false, and yet people are sincerely willing to die. And something about that seems noble to the human spirit, but it isn't exclusive to Christianity, though Christians have died, as we talked about this morning. But let's go further. There's nothing special about a religion with a dead founder. You can go out and find hundreds of them. I thank God every day for the fact that Jesus Christ was willing to die for our sins. But if he did not rise from the dead, it means nothing. And that's what the Bible says, not me. You go, that's a terrible thing to say, that it doesn't matter if Jesus died on the cross. What well, absolutely matters if he rose from the dead. That's what the Bible says. 
And that's not to mention the fact that nearly every historian worth their salt today, even the ones that consider themselves to be radical atheists and anti-Christians, will affirm that a man named Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem around the time that the Bible claims he was. There are no serious historians today that say, oh, there was no Jesus. Oh, no, Jesus really died. Everyone agrees that there was a man named Jesus and that he was crucified by the Romans in Jerusalem. Jesus' death is not the sticking point. It is not the debated issue. It is his resurrection that is the sticking point. And it has always been the sticking point. The Roman world did not believe that people rose from the dead. The Greek word for resurrection, anastasis, was only used in the negative sense to say people do not raise up from the dead. Now, did they believe in ghosts? Absolutely. Sure, they believed in ghosts. Did they believe in spirits coming from the other side beyond the veil? Of course, their stories were built on this. But the bodies of the dead absolutely do not reconstitute and start walking among us. I think about when Paul was talking to the Areopagus in Athens. He preaches this sermon about the true God of heaven, the one who created all men. He said that the unknown God that you worship, I want to tell you about him. He's not far from any one of us. And the scholars on Mars Hill ate it up. They loved to hear anything new. And, oh, this was amazing. This God not far from any of us. This one that we were, oh, tell us more about this God. They were captivated by the words of Paul. But then something changed in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verse 29, Paul says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Why did some mock? They didn't mock when he said anything else about this God, this potential of an all-powerful being up there who's looking out for us, who's near to us. It was only when he said he raised somebody from the dead, and then they said, get this guy out of here. This guy is a loon to say that somebody was raised from the dead. Well, what about when Paul stood on trial before King Agrippa on his way to Rome? When he did that, he gave an account of all the events in his life that led to his seat on that stand. He talked about his upbringing, the persecution that he did against the church. He talked about his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. But then he said in Acts chapter 26 and verse 22, He said, to this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And it was at that point when Festus the governor, upon hearing of the resurrection of the dead, screams out in verse 24, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Festus says believing in the resurrection of the dead, believing that dead people come back to life, has and always will be foolish to the human mind. It's always foolish. It's always nonsense to say that. And we understand we've known people that have died. We all have people dear to us that have died. None of them come back. We know that they don't. And so the Greek world, the Roman world, said absolutely not. It's foolishness, and you're a fool for believing it. Well, if that's the case, then what do we do with Jesus? 
a man whose claim to fame is that he rose from the dead. It's often been said, and you've heard it, we've heard it in apologetic seminars, that there's really only three options when it comes to Jesus. Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he is indeed the Lord that he claimed to be. There isn't another option. It's one of those three. But the truth of Jesus is absolutely tied to his resurrection. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then he was most certainly either insane or evil if he didn't rise from the dead. I like the words of author C.S. Lewis on that potential reality about the evil of Jesus if he truly is not the Lord. Lewis said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. That's the only options. If he did not rise from the dead, he is one of those things and certainly not the Lord. But if on that Sunday morning a dead man laying in a tomb sat up and he unwrapped the linen cloths around his head and neatly folded them, and then walked seemingly through the earthen walls of that tomb out into the living world, then everything has changed. If that really did happen, it changes everything. For one, if Jesus Christ truly rose from the dead, then the Bible and everything it claims is true. It's true. If Jesus rose from the dead, it's all real. And that's why Paul could say in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1, he says that the gospel that God had promised in the Old Testament concerning Jesus not only proved that he was the son of David, but that he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit by, of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. If you want a declaration that Jesus is the son of God in proof, Paul says him rising from the dead is that proof. Now, we don't have time tonight to go through every piece of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. There is a lot that we could look at, but I want to say something that we can know for a fact historically about the resurrection. We know that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, that his resurrection was a, ho a hoax created by a small group of his closest disciples. If the resurrection is a hoax, it was put on by the twelve. It was put on by this group of men. If Christianity is a lie, they are the liars. They are the ones that said, the preachers who preached that they saw and touched the resurrected Jesus. They are the ones who have claimed to even have received the Holy Spirit sent from Christ and claimed to receive words and messages directly from Jesus himself after his supposed death. Paul claimed on multiple occasions to see Jesus. He says, I saw him. I saw him with my eyes and even noted that this man he saw called himself Jesus of Nazareth. The same man that had walked the roads around Judea and preached and appeared to all those people. What an amazing lie to spread all around the world. The, the, the lie that this man rose from the dead. What a terrible ruse to thrust hope on ignorant people that don't know better in the name of your own notoriety, in the name of your own fame. But the problem is, notoriety and fame is not what these men got for propagating this lie. In fact, history tells us that nearly every single one of them to the person was brutally murdered. These men that will be the liars if it's a lie, they were all murdered 
for this supposed lie. It's one thing for a person who's born and raised, brainwashed, if you will, into believing a false religion to die for a cause that he in all sincerity believes is a worthy sacrifice. But for people to die for the sake of preserving their lie, it almost makes you think that these men actually did see something. That something really happened that changed their minds and changed their lives. When Paul shared the gospel... He didn't hold up the resurrection as some shadowy thing, some happening that we could only take on faith. Because if you look in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 5, it says, Jesus, we know that he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. If Jesus' resurrection is not true, then the circle of conspiracy involves more than just a dozen accomplices. You have nearly 500 people spread out over the entirety of the Roman Empire who can corroborate the fact that Jesus Christ walked the earth after his death. Paul mentioned that these people were alive, and so for these people who lived during the first century church, they could actually track down not just one person, but maybe multiple people who could continue to say that Jesus really did rise from the dead. I could talk to them. they say, yeah, absolutely, I saw him. And what about this guy? Yeah, I saw him too. I touched him. I saw him live and walk and breathe on this earth after his crucifixion. And that becomes really important to me if I'm a first century Christian. If I'm living in those days when becoming a Christian could very well mean losing my ability to support my family, being driven from my home, even the death of me, my wife, my children, my entire family, I will not have my children die for a lie. It's hard enough to have them die for any reason, but if they're going to die, I want it to be for the truth and not for some lie that someone has made up. But the fact of the matter is the church did not shrink in the face of persecution. It grew. It exploded. If you're in this room tonight and you're not a Christian or if you're not familiar with the history, I invite you to look at the movement of history and check it against the words of the Bible and see if it makes you wonder just how it was that a small group of people hiding out in an upper room in Jerusalem turned into a world wide church that doesn't just happen it doesn't happen for no reason yet it's exactly what happened in history and once you see it it's hard to deny once you study this book and you look at the evidence in it and you see the evidence that it isn't just a good book but it's the beautiful perfect inspired masterwork of god himself you can start believing things that really seem impossible, that seem foolish to believe. You will believe that Jesus Christ was truly the Son of God, that he was God in the flesh, that he came to this earth and that the feet of God walked the dusty roads of Judea, and that the hands of God were nailed to a cross, and that the body of God was wrapped in royal cloths and laid into the earth, and that after a Sabbath rest that God rose on the first day of the week, proving once and for all that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is Lord of heaven and earth, and that he is worthy of all praise and glory forever and ever. Amen. You'll believe that once you start believing this book. But I don't want you to be under the impression that Jesus' resurrection is simply a proof it's just, a, it's just a piece of evidence that should lead you to the baptistry. It is that. It should lead you to the baptistry, and it should lead you down the road that Jesus walked. But it's more than that. It's more than just proof that Christianity is true, because the resurrection has real implications for you today. We know that Christ had to die 
for our sins to be forgiven. We often say that Jesus died for our sins. But it's in Romans chapter 4 and verse 24. Paul says salvation is for those who believe in God, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You are saved by Jesus' resurrection just as much as you're saved by his death. Delivered for trespasses, raised for our justification. That is our salvation. And the reason is that salvation looks like resurrection. Do you want to live forever? It's an easy question, isn't it? Do you want to see death destroyed forever. The only path to that reality is Jesus Christ, and the end of that path looks like your resurrection. Because when we talk about resurrection in the Bible, we aren't just speaking about the one resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are talking about the future resurrection of all humans. And that's why people like the Apostle Paul literally gave their entire lives, even to the point of death. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Paul says he's willing to give up his life that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Jesus died and rose from the dead so that after you die, you can rise from the dead on that last day. And so we can read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 earlier, Paul had said, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it's all for naught, it's foolishness, it's pitiable. But now he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, the first of many, many more. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. It's a historically attested fact that the Jewish people believed in the resurrection of the dead. We don't have a specific reference for when this happened. It's funny, when you go from the pages of the Old Testament to the pages of the New Testament, things seem to have changed drastically in that period. And we don't have an exact reference for the forming of the belief that there would be on the last day a resurrection of the dead. There are some hints in the Psalms, I believe, and there's passages like Daniel 12, 2, where it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. But it's obvious by the time that Jesus was born and walked on the earth that there was a common belief that on the last day, God would raise up all the dead from their graves and that he would vindicate his children. We know that the Pharisees were staunch believers in the resurrection of the dead, which separated them from the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection. We remember a time where they tried to fool Jesus based on their lack of belief in the resurrection. But that's why, because of this belief in the resurrection, that's why when Jesus arrives at Bethany after Lazarus' death, he is, after he assures Martha, your brother will rise again, she is not shocked by this news. Look at John chapter 11, verse 24. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Everybody knew that. Of course Lazarus is going to rise from the dead on the last day. But what Martha didn't know, and what the Jews certainly didn't know, is what Jesus says in the very next verse. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. And I didn't give the next verse, but it says, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? 
the resurrection on the last day isn't a generic event. I don't want you to think that the natural course of history is that all people rise from the dead. No, the natural course of history is death. The resurrection is the supernatural work of Jesus Christ. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it tells us that Jesus himself will descend from heaven with a loud cry of command, that Jesus will shout, come out, and the dead in Christ will rise. I don't know if you have ever been to the Pleasant Hill Church of Christ. It, you would, it would be impossible to accidentally go there. You would have to be trying to get to Pleasant Hill Church of Christ. Jackson County is rural already, and it's the most rural part of the county, if I can say it, because it's out in the middle of nowhere. But it's a wonderful church. There's some great people that attend there. And if you stand in their building facing the pulpit in Pleasant Hill Church of Christ and you look out the window to your right, you see a beautiful, well-maintained graveyard. It's the prettiest graveyard I've ever seen in my life. There's just something beautiful about it, and that's funny to say. But on the last time I was there, I found myself staring at that group of headstones thinking about the end of time. I imagine the dead rising up out of those graves, coming up through the ground by the sheer power of the command of Jesus. I think about that great reunion as all the dead rise up, standing together, looking up at the Savior who is returning just as he promised. It will surely be the greatest scene in all of human history. Do you believe it? Do you believe that that's actually going to happen. I want you to think about the next time you drive past a graveyard. We have several around. I I want you to question, do I really believe that on that last day that all the dead are going to rise up out of the ground? Do I really believe that Jesus is going to raise each and every last person? If you truly do believe that, if you can find it in your heart to believe that that will really happen, you have just become a dangerous person. Because you've just become a person who, like Paul, will risk life and limb to serve the kingdom of Jesus Christ because he is the only one that can offer resurrection and he has promised it and you believe that he will give it. On that day, attaining to the resurrection is all that will matter. The most important point of the rest of your life, bar none, will be when Jesus gives you that resurrection body that you will have for all of eternity. It's at that point that we see in 1 Corinthians 15 the beautiful words, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the immortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And he finishes by saying, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Before we close, I want to look at the words of Job that were read earlier by Brother Bill. Job lived thousands of years before Jesus was born, and Job was a man who suffered greatly, as many of us do. We suffer things in life, maybe not the extent that Job did, but enough that we have scars and we have pain and we hurt from our sufferings, enough to hate death and the devil who embodies it. Enough that we all long for a day when God will wipe away the tear from every eye and all pain and suffering and hurt will be no more 
forever. We hurt that way. We, we have those feelings. Job was at a low place, maybe the lowest place in his life. And maybe you're in a low place tonight as well. Maybe you feel like you've been forsaken. But it's in the concept of Job's forsakenness at his lowest point that he said the words, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. One day after you're dead and gone, and your body has decomposed back into dust, if the Lord gives us that time, you will see God with your own eyes. Nobody else's. You'll see God with your own eyes. When you stand before him raised from the dead, you will find yourself in need of a redeemer. Who can save you from the eternal death that comes to those who are found in sin? Your only hope is a living redeemer. And Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I stand before you tonight with all the confidence in the world when I say, I know that my Redeemer lives. What about you? Do you have a Redeemer? Do you have someone that will redeem you on that last day and raise you incorruptible to enjoy eternal life? If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, the only way to that eternal life, the only way to that resurrection is Jesus. And to live like Jesus, you have to die like he did, and you will die with him in the waters of baptism. You can be covered in the blood of Jesus, you can have your sins washed away, and you will rise now to a brand new life, and one day you'll rise to eternal life forever. Christians, we do not have to live as if death is the end of our story. It's a part of our story. We'll all experience that given the time. But our brief time now is nothing compared to the weight of glory that will be given to us on that last day if we are faithful.